0: Let's give our attention to the word of God. The reading today is from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, and it's the whole of chapter 24, an episode in the life of David, soon to be king, as he encounters the current wicked king, Saul. This is God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by day, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men said to David, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, "Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord have he- behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my Father? See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Thus far we read in God's holy word. May he bless all who hear it, believe it, and obey it. Amen. We find continually in this story, this unfolding story of King Saul and now king to be David, the shepherd boy, we find a great contrast of hearts, do we not? I've said the, the title I would give to this series of sermons, to this book, is Looking on the Heart. What we have here is God's giving us a picture not only of the godly heart of David, but the ungodly, hard, rebellious heart of Saul. And I know all of us would like to constantly identify with David. But the truth is, some of Saul's heart is often found in us. Our hearts are not fully uh, compliant with the Lord at all times, and the temptations and behaviors of Saul sometimes come close to home. What we need to do is look on our hearts and strive to have a heart after the things of God. What we see in particular here in chapter 24 is we see David's heart for God manifest itself in his restraint, his righteous restraint. As uh, Dale Davis has said, the man after God's own heart does not seize the kingship God promised, but waits for it to be given to him. He does not seize it, but he waits. That's God's heart in David. And there's a principle behind that which Dr. Davis also expresses this way Jehovah's will must be achieved in Jehovah's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. We need to do a little more thinking, and we will today, about the relationship between the means and the end. Does the end justify the means? If it's a good outcome, can I do anything to get there? This is a a grand illustration of that, that the ends do not justify the means. Not for those who are righteous, not for those who fear God, not for those whose heart is after the things of God. And this is good news for today. This passage is good news for us because you know what? You have a problem with waiting, I know, because so do I. We don't like to wait. We, we are pretty comfortable with manipulating circumstances to our advantage. We put our own spin on the opportunities. Oh, I could do this, I guess. Look at that. We don't like to wait. wait waiting feels weak. It, it kind of puts the kibosh on our pride and our sense of control, doesn't it? We like our interpretation of events. We like our exercise of our rights. Hey, it's it's okay for me to do this, so I'm going to do it. Or I interpret my rights to be this, so I'm going to take his life. David was tempted to think that way. That's what we see here. So understanding his righteous restraint and seeing what the scriptures have to teach us today will help us today. Let's first begin by looking at the first seven verses where David is tested by promises and providence. Not only providence, the unfolding of events from God, but the promises he had been given. He's tested. How does he believe them? How does he interpret them? And I see this as one grand test. Let's see how David does. In verse 1, we're told that Saul is... uh, done with the Philistines who threatened the whole country, and he's back at seeking out David. He hears where David is, and so he grabs his elite forces, his palace guard, however we might call them, and he heads out towards this hideaway in the Judean hills, not far from the Red Sea. David was in a beautiful place, a little oasis-like spot called En Gedi, A lot of Bible commentaries will spend a lot of time just describing that picture—a spot. Although I don't think David had a a coconut drink and and eye protection, and and put his feet up and just was waiting uh, for the next sunset. Uh, David was there hiding from Saul's pursuit with his men, the outcasts or the people on the run from society, who came to him for leadership. He's in this wilderness place called Engedi, and Saul comes. And as Saul is in the neighborhood and seeking to attack David, he pauses and enters a cave. And here we see a very surprising turn of events. Because the very cave that Saul enters to use as a restroom, in both sense of the words, is a bathroom, and then as a place to rest... The phrase here is literally expressed in the ESV footnotes to cover his feet, to let down his robes for his bodily function, and then maybe to rest in the cool of the cave. And it's the same cave where David and his men are in the back. So we might need to think more in terms of house caverns. Something pretty substantial in size. And you know, when you're in the recesses of the cave, you're in the dark spots, you're in the shadows, it's the person who comes to the front of the cave who's illuminated by the entrance, and someone coming in royal robes or with his royal military uniform on is easily recognized. And they say, "Look, it's Saul. He's coming in. Oh, there's, he's doing his business. There's Saul. Now's your time, David. Kill him." A surprising opportunity. We have opportunities and surprises every day, it seems, at least every week. We don't know what the future holds, and sometimes we have interesting turns of event ourselves. But what we need to do next is we need to sort these things out. Is this a providential provision of God that we should seize? Is there some directive in God's word as to how we should respond? Here in the story, David Hears his men speak. And let me ask you about this. Uh, what Bible verse are the men quoting here? Um, when uh, the men of David said to him in verse 4, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you. You know, it, it sounds okay, but I don't think they're quoting a Bible verse. I don't think the Lord ever said, Hey, I'm going to bring Saul to you and you, you kill him. There is no Bible verse. Rather, what are the men doing as they counsel David? They're egging him on to seize the opportunity because obviously, isn't it obvious? It seems obvious to me. He brought Saul to you and all the army guys are outside. You can just kill him. It's an opportunity. Opportunity's knocking, David. Go for it. We have to be careful when we're sorting out the providence of God. If uh, you're walking down the street and uh, you, you see a purse or a wallet on the ground and it's flowing with cash, the providence of God, he's just enriched you, has he not? Well, no, what's the right thing to do? We bring our own interpretive grid to that. The right thing to do is look for the owner, turn it in, do what's right. In this situation, David knew that he was to be king he knew that the Lord was done with Saul and was going to remove Saul. Did that mean the Lord wanted David to kill Saul? What does David do? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't deliberate, he doesn't sort this out very much. The men are speaking in verse 4. Uh, how does verse 4 end? David got up, he arose and stealthily cut off the corner of the robe he began exploring saying I could easily kill Saul and he gets close he gets close and he's probably thinking about killing Saul but instead just cuts off the corner of the the robe the tassel the the edge of his robe and that takes a great deal of skill but he does it and he sneaks back to his men It felt good. It seemed good to David to do that, I'm sure. But as a modern commentator points out, in the end, circumstances are usually just a thin veneer for a person's underlying desires. David had been on the run for years. And he was probably very tired of Saul's pursuits. So he does this. But verse 5 says, immediately, afterward, David's heart struck him. This stealthy deed was followed very quickly by this spiritual heartache. And I think it's important that we see that language. His heart struck him. Because one of the themes of this book is, what is it like to have a heart after God? To be right with God? And if his heart struck him, that helps me interpret the action That there was something wrong that caused a guilt response. It was wrong of David to cut off the tassel or the edge of the king's robe while he slept in the cool of the cave. And his heart pricks him. That's one of the things, if you're godly, you will often experience guilt, as well as joy and peace, right? Maybe we should add a verse to that chorus we sang earlier. I've got peace like a river. I've got guilt like a Christian. No. But we do have to understand if our heart and our eyes are open to the things of God, and we see God's word and all of a sudden it illumines something in me that is sinful, I will feel guilt. But then we need to sing that refrain, I've got a savior in Jesus Christ. My sins are covered by the cross. I can confess and turn from these sins. I can repent and continue to believe and commit my way to the Lord. David had heartache because he had cut off a corner of the king's robe. And as he speaks to his men here, he explains his thinking. He said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. It's repeated. Saul isn't worthy of his love and affection, but as the Lord's anointed, he deserves David's respect. And to grasp at someone's robe, to tear someone's robe is a sign of revolt. It's a sign of antagonism, not submission. And David has this spiritual heartache because he had rushed ahead to cut the robe and show this dishonor. There's part of the danger here, just a quick word of application. When you rush without thinking, the Scottish preacher William Blakey said, nothing is more critical than a sudden opportunity of indulging in ardent passion with scarcely a moment for deliberation. One is apt to be hurried blindly along and at once commit the deed. When you are hasty, you will be more careless and you may commit sin. Stop and think. Smart advice. But David is thinking now and he's convicted. He, he, he had gone along with his men and their interpretation and he, and he regrets that. He had only gone so far, but it was too far. Mary Jane Evans says the tendency to elaborate on or to reinvent God's promises is a common tendency. It is, to David's credit, that his yielding to the pressure of his men was short-lived. And here he takes his stand. This opening heading in the sermon has a fourth point here, and it's David takes a stand against the crowd. And we could rename that as David exercises his faith in the things of God. He takes a stand. He's changed now. Verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. There's more there than meets the eye. I checked several English translations and they seem to catch the, the sharpness of the verb when it says David persuaded his men. Uh, that That's uh, the word for cut or divide. That's a sharp, almost uh, militarily pointed term. David got tough and to the point, maybe poking the leader of the men in the sternum saying, you will sit down, mister. It, it has an intensity to it in the Hebrew that most English translations don't catch. David turns to them and stops them, he takes a vivid stand against their impulse to seize the opportunity. David' sparing Saul's life was a great instance of God's grace in him, said Matthew Henry. And that grace manifests itself in this stand that he takes. What, what's changed? David sees Saul now not as his personal enemy, but as the Lord's anointed. He says God anointed him, and usually your anointing for king was for life. God's anointed me to be king next, but he did not give me permission. I am not king now. I don't have the power of Saul's life in my hand. I've not yet been crowned. I'm anointed and called to that. And you know what? I remember one of those commandments said, thou shalt not murder So David is here acting by faith in the promises of God, rightly understood, in the law of God, rightly remembered. A.W. Pink says he is looking at things from the divine viewpoint. That brought conviction. He now regarded Saul not as a personal enemy, but as one whom God had appointed to reign as long as he lived. David's displaying his faith. And if you admire David in this cave scene, hopefully it's not for his ninja-like abilities to cut somebody's uniform. As a kid, I thought that was the cool part. But the great part here is when the godly David stands against the crowd to say what's right. These were his people. These were men who were quoting the Lord to him kind of vaguely but he says no he draws the line he defends and saves Saul's life in the cave you know to to just re-underline this point it's John Murray when he's writing in his commentary on Romans says this is the essence of godliness right here he he says this the the famous John Murray theologian here we have what belongs to the essence of piety The essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God, to take everything into our own hands. It is faith to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our care upon him and to vest all our interest in him. The way of faith is to recognize that God is judge and to leave the execution of vengeance and retribution to him. David had abilities to take the life of Saul but he did not have the ability to take the place of God in that cave we who know the, the work of God in this world do not. we are not at liberty to take the lives of evil men we are not at liberty to let crowds run rampant with what they think is right when we know it's wrong David here takes a stand. He displays his faith and his godliness. What a great picture this is, but there's more. So we press on. Starting in verse 8, we see David acting on this trust as he speaks to Saul. We see trusting the Lord for deliverance. He has protected Saul, but he's still on the run from Saul. How, How does he square that? Well, you know what he does? He goes outside the cave and waves at Saul. Okay, you were hiding, and the situation had just diffused. What are you going to do, David? David has such great faith in the Lord and trust in his God that he steps outside the, the cave and says, Yo, Saul, hello? Now, to be fair, he waits until Saul gets a kind of across the valley because he has to shout. So he gives a little distance. David's not stupid, but he is faithful. And he's close enough that they can have a conversation, but probably only just. And the text describes it. He went out of the cave, called after Saul, my lord, the king. Not a uh, loser. He doesn't call him names. He respects the office in his words and his dress. And when Saul looks, David bows with his face towards the earth and acknowledges that's the king of Israel At the moment. That's trust in God on display. He calls out calmly. He respects the king. And he not only calls out to get the king's attention and begin this dialogue. But I'm squeezing in another point here under calls out. He calls Saul's attention to a particular group that's not good for him. Maybe you didn't notice it when we first read through. What does David say first in verse 9? David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? What is David doing? He's saying, my lord, the king, you're a victim of uh, this guy in your court named Wormtongue. This guy who's speaking to you, this guy who's poisoning you. He's telling you stuff that's not true. Why do you listen? See the passive tones. He's kind of giving the king a way out, saying, I'm just going to presume that you've been misinformed here, king. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Uh, That there were conspirators who spoke against David is absolutely true. You can look at Psalm 7 to see that David has a whole psalm about someone, Cush, uh, Benjamite, someone from Saul's tribe who's been speaking against David, enemies who slander him. It's all in Psalm 7, a short psalm. That psalm is uh, uh, insightful. But David calls that out. His trust is in the Lord. David is calmly proclaiming truth and encouraging the king to seek the truth. King, think about what you're hearing. Think about what's true. These guys say there's a conspiracy against you. I've not been plotting. David does go on. He does go on to claim his innocence. He does go on to make his case. Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Someone told me to kill you, but I spared you. And he did. He not only spared him from his own knife, he spared them from the many knives in the back of the cave. And he shows the proof. He waves the corner of the garment. And that's the moment, you have to read between the lines, where Saul's jaw drops. What? And Saul's bodyguard go. What? A very humbling moment. David's claims of innocence stand upon truth. If you're a God-fearing person, truth is on your side. And we are well served with our friends and with our enemies to let the truth stand on its own. I know many people claim to understand the truth, and they there's some that, that think they have a secret pile of truth that most people don't see. The truth is what what's there, what can be seen and proven. And David holds up the garment. That's true. David had the king's life in his hands. That's true. And as David claims his innocence and pleads his case, he does throughout this proverb. Here it's simply called... Um, uh, a proverb in verse the, of the ancients. It's not a scriptural proverb per se, but it does have scriptural truth. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. Um, uh, uh, every tree bears fruit. The good tree, good fruit. The bad tree, bad fruit. He's just saying, hey, if I were wicked, I would have done the wicked thing. Because I didn't do the wicked thing, I think my heart's okay, Saul. Look at me. And David's not simply quoting that old common popular proverb for his own exoneration, but as David puts it out there, there's a double meaning. And it kind of makes Saul shift on his seat. Oh, because Saul's the one who's been doing wicked things, Saul's been the one who's been pursuing David. The proverb has a double meaning. And it's there. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David's claims of innocence have also established the reality. Saul, you're the one who needs to fear the Lord. David commits himself to the Lord as judge. He says, I'm not going to execute judgment on you. That's in God's hands. May the Lord, verse 15, judge. May he give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David's not saying, oh, I don't know who's right here. We'll let God figure it out. No, David sees the right and the wrong. But David shows this righteous restraint to wait upon God to execute the judgment. Christians need to be discerning. We need to call out sin when we see it. We need to acknowledge the truth of a situation. But it is not ours to execute the judgment. Here is another grand display of David's faith. I will entrust myself to the one who has delivered me time and time again, to the one who's made promises to me. I will not force those promises to come true, but I will wait upon him. I, I think many claiming to be Christians have different definitions of faith. And, and I'm sure the, the name it and claim it crowd sees a promise in scripture and they want it. Streets of gold, I want that now. Life without tears, I want that now. That's why I took time to quote John Murray. When he said the essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God and take everything into our own hands. It is faith, he says, to commit ourselves to God, cast all our care upon him, and to vest all our interests in him. Remember who's who. God is God and you're not. David's trust and his faith We will see that in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who entrusted himself to the Father even as men treated him unjustly. Even though he had rights and the trial was a sham, even though Jesus could have produced witnesses and fought the legal system, he does the Father's will. And in his case, it was explicitly that he should lay down his life. Pilate couldn't understand that, could he? We'll get to this on Palm Sunday and, and getting ready for Easter. We'll, we'll talk about the gospel and Jesus' experience with Pilate. But it wasn't the first time in the Bible somebody had to take a stand and entrust themselves to the Lord in the face of those who could kill him. That's the faith we've been called to, by the way. Jesus said something, how does it go? Take up your cross and follow me? Wait, cross, that's the thing that you die on. It's like saying take up your electric chair. We follow Christ. Not because it's a congo line or a party. We follow Christ because it's the right thing to do. And in him we have life. He is our shepherd. He knows what's for our best. We're the sheep and we don't know what's right. That looks green. I think I'll eat that. Said the sheep about the poison weeds. Oh look, God brought it real close. I can nibble on it. We need to be discerning. We need to be faithful. We need to wait upon the Lord. David is a beautiful model of that for us. But let's look at Saul here at the end of the passage. What's going on with Saul in light of all of this? Starting in verse 16. And I call this segment of the sermon, confessions, excuse me, concessions, but not contrition. Let me define those terms. What's a concession? concession. I'm going to be tongue-tied. I like alliteration, right? You see it, I work hard on that every week. A concession, I will concede something, I will admit something is true. And usually concession has to do with reluctance. Your Honor, we will stipulate that the client did indeed do this. It's an acknowledgement of what's true. Okay, I admit it, that's true. But it's not contrition with Saul. What is contrition? That's the humility of heart. That's a sense of repentance. Repentance. That's the heart that says, I'm really sorry. Not just, I'm sad that happened. Yeah, that happened. That's broken. That's wrong. It's also with contrition. I'm sorry I broke it. What does Saul say? Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is, that your vo- is this your voice, my son David? Uh, there was a visual distance, right, between them. And he's trying to say, who's this guy that just came out of the cave? And the voice is the first trigger that that's David. David's grown up a bit. David's dressed differently than the last time he saw him. But he hears the voice and he recognizes it. And it is interesting that Saul says, my son, David. It's a term of endearment. And here it's actually literally true. Didn't David marry one of Saul's daughters who helped him escape? And she's probably not in good standing with her dad. But Saul starts speaking Somewhat kindly. He's startled, I'm sure, at a voice coming from the cave that he just left. But he's startled and he speaks that way. And what does it say? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Did you see that in verse 16? Saul, king of Israel, the bad guy, the spear-throwing king, who some people said uh, just had madness and other evil intents, he starts weeping. This is the most vulnerable moment of Saul, probably in his life. He is having a moment here. He, he's got to stop the interview. He's weeping. He's, he's caving. I'm sure some of his armed men were a little uneasy. There's David. We've been hunting him. Go kill him. Get your spear, Saul. And he starts weeping. He's having an emotional reaction. But we cannot pause and say, oh, look, Saul, he's repentant. Oh, Saul, you finally come home, the prodigal king. No. No. Don't be fooled by emotional displays. How many people have heard of Jonathan Edwards? And you probably heard of the Great Awakenings in New England back in his day. Jonathan Edwards had to write a book on religious affections. I, I commend it to you. Edwards isn't always easy to read, but he's very profound. What was this book about religious affections? He says, not everything that's emotional is spiritual. Revival's broken out and there are some excesses. Just because somebody cries a lot and feels guilty a lot, they're not yet converted. The work of the spirit is complex and these are the things you should look for. Edwards lays them out and tries to be clear about religious affections. And you know what? I think today, anytime somebody cries, we, we just sell them the whole product for nothing. Oh, okay, you're sad. Well, that's okay. Saul has tears here. He's in a sad state, but he is not converted. He is not changed as we will see. And let me ask another question. Why confess the truth, but not change your ways? Saul here admits several things that are true. He says what? He says, yeah, I've treated you poorly. He says, yeah, David, you're going to be the next king. He he, he basically gives up the farm, doesn't he? uh, You've declared this day of you've dealt well with me. um, And uh, I've not dealt well with you. Uh, You will surely be king. And the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. That's Saul? Saul, why have you been trying to kill him then if if you know what's true? Why confess these things to be true but not change your ways? It's not over. Because Saul is in spiritual rebellion. Saul's bigger problem is with the Lord, not so much with David, his anointed. Spiritual rebellion There's a lady back in the 70s and 80s who wrote a book on evangelism called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Do you remember her name? Becky Pippert. It's not a tongue twister, but it could be. Um, She has another book where she, just as a layman, writes about David. It's very interesting. Different angles and points of view. Looks at the struggles between Saul. But she sees very clearly here. Puts her finger on Saul's problem. She says, The heart of rebellion is to know the truth, to see God's will, and yet refuse to do it. That's rebellion. Doesn't mean you're ignorant of the truth or what God wants. You know what God wants, but you are not going to do it. That's sinful rebellion, and Saul is stuck in that rebellion. His heart has become hardened. He prefers his rebellion to acknowledging the Lord and serving the Lord. We see here Saul, he seeks assurances, but he offers none. He seeks assurances from David and offers none here at the end. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me. Um, Interesting that the word cut off comes up again. I know some of you are are good Bible scholars and you look for these details in your knowledge of the word. The word cut off is, is a key theme in chapters 20 to probably 24 25 26 cut off back in chapter 20 Jonathan and David they they kind of cut a covenant they they made a point of making that arrangement and uh, David cuts off the hem of Saul's garment and here's Saul saying you may have cut off my garment and the Lord's done with me but don't cut off my name don't cut off my family tree it's a theme And it's a theme that points to the fact that there are consequences to our actions. Saul wants these assurances. Why? I've been asking that question this week. Why why does he ask these assurances? Because we know, as the reader, that David already promised Jonathan, I'm not going to hurt your family tree. I've got a covenant with you. I hope to see you there when I'm king. Right? They were okay. It's just Saul, the individual But Saul is seeking these assurances. He doesn't want to do what God tells him to do, but he still wants the blessings and protections of God's anointed. Let me rephrase that in case you miss it for the year 2021. A lot of your neighbors here in America, they want the blessings that God has to give them. But they don't want to live in obedience to him. Sin wants its rebellion. It wants to keep its sin, but it wants to cover its bases. Saul's grasping at straws here. That was actually the first answer I, I came up with when I tried to answer this question. What is Saul asking for here? The first word that popped in my head, he's grasping at straws. So if you know me, online I go. What's the etymology of that expression? Do you know what grasping at straws is all about? It's not trying to find something for your covered cup of milk. In the cupboard, you're not trying to find a straw. Grasping at straws. It's an expression. Think of it. It's an idiom referring to a drowning man grabbing any floating object, even a reed or a straw, to save himself. At least that's the way it was first used by Thomas More back in 1534. You're drowning, you're going to grab anything. If you've ever done life-saving, you know that the person who swims out to save a drowning person is in danger of being drowned because the drowning person grabs at them. Saul is grasping at David. This grasping at straws, it means to find some way to succeed when nothing you choose is likely to work. Trying to find a reason to feel hopeful in a bad situation. That's Saul. And that's your neighbors. When they want God's blessings but won't live in his ways. David's the one on the run. David's the one who looks like the drowning man. He's cornered in the cave. There's Saul. What does David grasp at? Well, he almost takes things into his own hands. But in the end, he has faith in the promise of God. No, I don't have to kill Saul for God's word to come true for me. I don't have to make the ends justify the means. David doesn't start grasping at straws. Rather, by faith, he believes in the word of God. And that includes waiting on the Lord's timing. How anemic Many Christians today look next to David. I'm named after that, David. But my faith is so small. I'm getting older. My ministry's in its golden years. Lord, I want to grasp at a few things too. I want to make something happen. but I must just have faith in God's word and in his ways. The ends don't justify the means. And so this is a welcome bit of good news for me today. Let me close with a few exhortations to all of us. Number one, beware the hard heart of sinful rebellion. Beware the hard heart of sinful rebellion. It will sneak up on you and there may come a point of no return if you're in your sin. You know, Romans chapter 2, we often read, which describes depravity and men who refuse God and in their hard-heartedness won't recognize. Romans 2 is in the Bible, in the letter written to Christians in in Rome. And perhaps you need to go back and read Romans 2 this afternoon to check your heart. Is my heart hard, Lord? Could I be stubborn and unchangeable? The man of faith, like David, will be under heartache and conviction of sin when he sins, and he will change. So be wary of this hard, sinful, rebellious heart. Do not become like Saul. Secondly, be cautious with interpreting opportunities. That's a big takeaway. Be cautious in interpreting opportunities. Just because you found some money doesn't mean it's yours. Just because God seems to align something with you to get away with something else, which might have a good end result, the ends don't justify the means. Be very careful how you interpret opportunities. A.W. Pink says, Be exceedingly cautious how you interpret the events of providence and what conclusions you draw, lest you mistake the opportunity as following your own inclinations. We all have our own spectacles on and we see things our own way. Oh, here's my perfect opportunity. What do we need to do if we need to be cautious about our own interpretations? Well, you need to see what's absolutely clear in God's word. You need to talk to other mature Christians and get counsel. You need to take time and pray. Remember, haste does not help your hermeneutics. So be cautious. And if you simply are saying, listen, boys and girls, listen, if you say it feels good, it feels right, no. Feelings (laughs) is a real helpful one. Feelings are not safe to steer by. I know our culture says that's the only legitimate way to steer by. I feel I am this. I feel that's right. I feel, listen to it on the news. You'll hear it constantly. I feel, I feel We need to hear what saith the Lord and go with what's clear. And when it's not an issue that's made absolutely clear by God's word, we need to pursue the way of wisdom and think more than feel. Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need to be like David and stand holding The truth. And you may stand against Saul, you may stand against your friends. Finally, be faithful to the Lord in all things. In the face of Saul or in the face of the crowd, not only conduct yourself faithfully, but keep your hope and trust in the Lord. Put your anchor in the work of Christ and in his promises to be your helper, your high priest, your shepherd and your Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for your word. We thank you for this time of study and reflection, of hearing from you. Father, may we take in this truth. And even if it produces some measure of guilt in us, may we respond properly. Change us by your word. Help us to conform to the righteous model that your word describes. May we continue to stand against sin. May we stand against expediency and pragmatism when it is not right. Father, may we put our faith in you and take our stand for you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.